0: This is the Music Buzz
1: Podcast.
0: The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dan Clark, as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist with the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business.
1: Let's buzz.
2: Hello, and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hi, Andy. How are you doing today? I'm good. Also, Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andy. How are you doing? Good. Today, we welcome to the Music Buzz Podcast Richie Furey. Richie is an American music luminary, a Colorado Music Hall of Fame and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. He's celebrated for pioneering country rock as a founding member of the legendary and quintessential groups Buffalo Springfield, Poco, and the Southern Hillman Fure Band. Welcome to the Music Buzz Podcast, Richie.
3: Andy, thank you, man, and thank you guys, man. Gosh, all you guys look very cool to be here with you.
1: Well, Richie, as you can see, I'm a Buffalo Springfield (laughs) (laughs) nut. You are. (laughs) One of the greatest bands of all time, one of my favorites. Every year I, I play Farm Aid. And of course, Neil's always there. And I remember in 2011, I was crushed that you guys didn't play, uh, that Buffalo Springfield didn't play. You guys had gone out and done that tour and you'd played, you know, maybe 15 shows or something. And I just go, oh, man, I know they're going to be here. I know they're going to be there. And then you weren't. That was a bummer. I would really, really wanted to see that. You guys come back and play. It
3: was really a lot of fun. You know, we tried to do something back in the 80s getting together and it was a train wreck. It was absolutely it just didn't work. But when uh, Neil got in touch with me to do uh, the project you're talking about, where we did Bridge School and then we did about, I think, seven or eight concerts after that. Now, we were supposed to do more and I was put on on the block to tell everybody we're going to do this 30-day concert thing, you know, and and, I mean, Stephen's sitting right beside me at the time, and he looks, man, we're going to have to have wheelchairs for that, man. (laughs) But, you know, we we did Bonnaroo, and it it was kind of interesting. I mean, after every show that we did, we all got together afterwards, and it was like, you know, hey, you know, this was really a lot of fun, but see you tomorrow at the next one. But after Bonaroo, man, I never saw a person after we walked off stage. <laughs> it was like we were gone. So you know, it it happens. And uh, I'm going to see Neil here in a couple weeks with Stephen. We're doing a thing for my documentary that's coming out. And so in a couple weeks, we're getting together fourth. The fourth time is the charm. They usually
4: say third time's is a charm, but the fourth time we've tried to put this together is a charm. So we're going to get it. Documentary, are you going to be uh, sort of in discussion with the sort of documentary interview style? Or are you actually going to regroup and do some performances? No, it, it's
3: pretty much like you said, For it's just a lot of uh, a lot of different interviews with over the years, you know, David Stone and Danny Klein are putting it together and and they just felt that this story was worth telling. And so, hey, I said, OK, guys want to do it.
1: Well, it's definitely worth telling, man. I, I've got to tell you, your voice on the In the Country album, it blew my mind. I can't I mean, man, you're singing so well. I mean, maybe better than you sang in 1968. I agree with you. <laughs> I agree with
2: you. I agree. I, I listened to it this morning, walking my dog, and I was like, oh, I got I to listen to this record before we talked to him today. And I was talking to Dane earlier today, too. It's awesome, man. And I'm not just saying that, but it's, it's really, really.
3: Val Gray is really, uh, I mean, he's instrumental in in getting that sound. I got to give him a lot of credit. I will say that 90 probably 90% of that was done live. Of course there were tweaks, you know, I'm not going to sing perfect on every, but the feeling and the emotion he was able to pull off, you know, so 90% of the record was, was sung live and, and and it was, it was really cool. You know, Val and I've known each other since early Buffalo Springfield, way back in the 60s. And, uh, he went on obviously to be a, a great producer and producer of the year with Betty Davis eyes. And, uh, uh, when he came, he did my I Still Have Dreams record in 1979, and when, we, uh, when he asked me if I wanted to do this other project with him, you know, I said, well, man, I'd love to work with you again. He is a master. I mean, uh, when I heard my voice on this record, man, it was like, oh, my gosh, man, you you know how to
1: capture it. Wow, no question.
4: I happened to catch, I'm presuming from the applause that it was a small audience, but live at the hall, um, you sang, I think, one of your first I think it was one of the first songs you ever wrote called "Sad Memory." Oh, it's a classic. Yep. And when you sang that, just live, no tweaks, no production, always sounded great there too. I mean, ah, oh, thanks, Hugh. Thank you.
1: And that original record too. And by the way, as we're winding this thing down later, I've got like fifteen essential uh, Richie Fure tracks that. I'm, I'm going to get to but I'll let's we'll talk about all kinds of other stuff but man
3: somebody will finally get to hear them huh <laughs>
1: well I mean we want our listeners I want to make sure that they you know if they haven't heard certain tracks that they need to check these out I went back through the last couple last night and this morning and I really got chills here in your new record I really did and I don't like anything
2: I'm real hard to please me too I'm really hard to please do me ask these guys they know I don't like that he's let's... usually a big grouch about stuff Trust <laughs> me.
1: Yeah, I'm really pretty grumpy about <laughs> music, but man, I just, it made me feel good. It just,
3: it, well, thank yeah. you. It was really a lot of fun to make when we picked the songs, you know, I thought, you know, people say, well, why did you do covers? You know, the, Hey, listen, they were songs that really meant something to me when they were hits. And I just felt like, Hey, I wasn't in competition with Keith Urban or with Mark Cohn, whoever. I just wanted to do a song, you
1: know, and try to make it mine. And I think we made most of these songs, if not all of them. Oh, no question. I couldn't believe, I hope you danced. now. Was that Faith Hill did that or? No, that was Leanne Womack. And the way you do it, I don't know. I like all these songs better the way you've done them personally. They just sound, I don't know. I feel more from it. it I thought it was fantastic. I think to
2: your point too, I think when you're doing covers, if, you know, back in the old days, a lot of people did covers to try to get a hit, right? Because it was something familiar kind of halfway there already. Anymore though, you know, if you're doing covers and it's coming from the heart and you're a fan, you can tell that. It's not like you were doing this to be a number 1 charting single type thing, but you're doing it from your heart because you love the song and you can tell.
3: Absolutely. And for sure with this day and age to what the music business is and all and at my age, man, I'm not looking for a career. <laughs> you know, I'm just I just had a I just had the possibility the opportunity to do the songs and and it was a it was sure I can only say it again, man. It was just a lot of fun to make the record and I think we did a I think we did we we did honor to the songs and and to the originals as well you certainly did who was your lineup well uh, the uh, the band was Victor Drizio was on drums and Glenn Wharf that i had never worked with every record that I've made since 19 uh I guess probably 19 it was like 20 1979 not 1997 or so has been Michael Rhodes but Glenn Wharf played the bass and what a guy he's just terrific I've met Glenn
1: yeah he's he's a great player
3: Yeah uh, Dan Dugmore and Chris Lusinger and uh, Tom Bukovic were the guitar players and uh, Steve Nathan was the keyboard player and so that was that was the band uh, Vince Gill came in and sang on Lonesome Town and I did Lonesome Town because Ricky Nelson had such an influence on I couldn't wait for the Ozzy and Harriet show to get to the end where Ricky was singing you know he, he, was, he was a big influence on me and Timothy I, we had originally wanted J.D. Souther to come in and do that but J.D. His, the schedule's just never with COVID and everything else that happened you know we recorded this thing in 2019 and so you know when we, when we did it um, you know, schedules just changed. And Timothy was out at Val's house with my daughter, Jessie, and me doing background vocals on some songs. And I said to Val, just get Timothy to sing you in the part. And Timothy said, let me call Vince. And so he called Vince up and Vince hopped on. And that was really cool. John Barry, who had the big hit with Your Love Amazes Me, he came in and sang a verse of, of Your Love Amazes Me. And then, of course, Timothy.
2: Oh, Jerry Sheff, the bass player?
3: Yeah, but his son sang. His son,
2: Jason Chef, is that the name?
3: Jason, that's it. Oh man, thanks so much, Andy. Oh man, we, we uh, you know, we got as many people as we could. Um, we did it at Blackbird, and of course we wanted um, Martina to be on the record. And John called me into the office one day. She's she's gonna sing on your record. She doesn't sing on anybody's record, but she's gonna sing on your record. And um, you know, it, it, as time went on, her somebody passed away in her family, and she couldn't, you know, do it. So my daughter actually sang on one of the quote-unquote bonus tracks. Now, why they didn't put the bonus tracks on the CD version, which nobody buys anyway, but uh, they didn't do that, and so probably nobody even heard the George Strait. Uh, I cross my heart that my daughter Jesse, uh, she, she's sang on that.
4: Yeah.
1: That's great to get your daughter to, to sing with you, man. That's cool. My, mine sings with me sometimes, too. So it's always, when you get that, that family, there's nothing like that blend of family.
3: Yeah, that was, that was you know, that, that was one of the most fun things that we got to do that night, you know, just it was kind of intimate, you know, and it was in a little auditorium where they did a lot of the off things after, you know, after they did the big productions on Friday night and then, you know, they had these... And it was uh, it was a packed crowd and and all, but it was real intimate and it was something that was just real special to have her there and answer some of the questions and go back
4: and forth and do some of these songs. We could have gone on for a long time. reminded me of the riverboat in Toronto when I would watch people like Bruce Coburn and Murray McLaughlin, all these people that played there. You know, I think even Joni was there at one point, and I know Neil played there. I never saw him. I only saw Neil play at Massey Hall years later. Your music has been the backdrop of my life, you know, especially in the 70s, man. A Great
3: time to make music. It was a great time to make music.
1: Well, and you know, when when Poco first came out, you know, there was, you had the Sweetheart of the Rodeo record from the Birds, and then you had... Burrito Brothers. The Burrito Brothers, but the the Dillard and Clark, that first oh, yeah, Dillard and Clark yeah, yeah. record. The Gilda Palace of Sin, and then your first record. And I don't think anybody could argue of who the tightest band was. You might say that you like this one better than that one, But you guys were, even Chris Hillman said, when they had a great record, but the band was kind of a shambles live, as was Gene Clark's band with Doug Dillard because of whatever reasons. But you guys were smoking. You know, you were spot on live.
3: We, we we worked on it, and it's a characteristic of both Jimmy Messina and mine, man. I mean, we wanted to rehearse that when we stepped on stage, you know, we knew what we were doing. It was some of it was complicated, man. We weren't playing just three chord songs. No, you weren't. It was complicated, and then to put the vocals on, but uh, we, we did work on it. And, you know, you, you're talking about Chris and, and the Burrito Brothers. You know, Chris, when, when you know, Graham gets a lot of, um, Uh, attention on starting the country rock thing well chris would tell you man he said we weren't country rock we were country we were working in every country bar in los angeles you know we were a country man you know but he gets a lot of i think attention from you know working with the stones and working with the birds and working with a lot of other people but uh i think we we were the ones that kind of put that country rock thing together you know and uh and a lot of people,
1: you know, attached to it. I mean, the Eagles took two of my bass players, and uh, I was going to say, boy, they grabbed they grabbed that formula and milked it for all it was <laughs> worth. You know, you can't blame them. But but sat in my living room on twenty three hundred Laurel Canyon Boulevard, man,
3: and listened to us rehearse. I should have talked to him later on, man. Say, can you tell me, man? What... <laughs> those guys were terrific great songwriters and all oh, men. and uh, glenn's not with us anymore but those guys were terrific they were terrific musicians and they had the formula down no question
1: about it they've done okay
2: <laughs> so i have to ask about the documentary you mentioned it a little bit earlier and i watched the i watched the trailer and i know cameron crow uh voiced the trailer and whatnot is involved i am a super huge fan of music documentaries to, to the point where my wife's like no i'm never watching another documentary right i can tell when it's going to be a good one even from the trailer you know what i mean and i i got that sense when i watched I was like, oh, this is going to be really cool. So tell it, tell us about it.
3: You know, we 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 didn't want it to just be a pat on the back here. Such a good guy, man. Of course, I am. But uh, <laughs> but but you know, honest. We wanted honest interviews with people. You know, and and uh, I, I think. We didn't just want it to be the same old run-of-the-mill thing, so I think it's gonna gonna come to come to be like that. You know, it's pretty cool, and we were so thankful to have Cameron jump on board. I was his first interview when he was a 16-year-old kid. Man, I was, saw that. It, it was so strange how we even hooked up later on on my social media. I I saw I was reading something, and I saw Cameron Crow, and I'm thinking, no this is somebody you know just putting the name out there and and so I went behind the scenes and I I sent him a note and I said hey listen uh, I don't know if this is you but if it's you I'm getting together with Timothy and we're doing a thing at the Saban Theater at such and such a date and love to have you come he wrote right back and said it's me I'll be there and we hooked up man and it was nice awesome
1: yeah that's very cool what year was that when you did that first interview
3: uh in the first interview that would have been when poco 69 69 yeah
2: Yeah. that's awesome he was just a kid yeah he was 16 year old kid man there's a great picture of that on your website yeah i saw it last (laughs) night to (laughs) check that out young and spry (laughs) (laughs) not that you don't look great now you know if you get to be this old you do the best
1: (laughs) (laughs) so do you have any secrets i mean what's your fountain of youth secret for your voice I mean there's just a lot of guys that by the time they're in their 70s they're they're having trouble do you have anything you can like tell our listeners that any secrets or
3: man, I really can't, Dane, because I haven't taken care of my voice like I could have and should have. And I'd have never sung right from my diaphragm. I always I tried to take some lessons when I moved to Colorado, and it started it's just like, man, that's not me. I can't do that, you know. So I sing from here up, and and
4: sometimes I'm one and done, and sometimes I can do seven or eight in a row. <laughs> what I found impressive is most people, you know, that are in their seventies um not that i can relate but. yes you can <laughs> <laughs> no comment for beer <laughs> most people in their 70s they they lose things like their falsetto and so on even that was intact when you did the live at the hall i mean you you, you slipped effortlessly into falsetto so yeah kudos to you man well thank you i mean you know i gotta say man
3: the lord has uh, has blessed me i'm able to still get out and and do some things and and I do have to watch how many I put back to back now when I do get a chance to go out. But I, I, I don't know if if I would have ever learned to to sing right. You know what it would have been. But boy, they when I tried to take those lessons, it was it was just awful. Oh my gosh! I said this this will never this isn't me. I can't do it. I don't know how
4: to I don't know how to do it. Well,
1: I, I'm glad it didn't work because we if you wouldn't sound like you do now, which is just absolutely fabulous.
4: Here are some of my favorite singers. Have never taken a lesson in their life, you know. John Lennon, Elton John, you know Bob Dylan, uh, even Neil, you know Neil Young, who's got the most, you know, distinctive voice. You know, it's 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 just suits the music. Nobody can sing an Elton John song except Elton
1: or a Neil song. Yeah, but I'll tell you. Richie here could sure sing those Neil Young songs on the first Buffalo Springfield record pretty beautifully. Nowadays, Clancy can't even sing, man. Is there a better song? Come on now. You know, I got a funny story with that when we were
3: putting the, the reunion together that you never got to see. Ah, I know it. You know, went out and, and um, I, I think, you know, Neil and I got together before anybody else did. And uh, I think they were what he was wanting to see, you know, hey, is this going to work with this guy or not? You know, <laughs> I don't know. And I said, well, hey, you know, man, we in my shows, when I do some live, I put this I put all these songs together. Uh, Flying on the ground is wrong. Do I have to come right out and say it? And Nowadays, Clancy can't. I put him in a medley, man. And why don't we try some? No. He just said no. He said, every song has to stand on its own. So we, we ended up doing a couple of the songs in in the set, but uh, that was kind of a funny story, man, when he just, yep, oh, oh every song has to stand on its own. <laughs> Where did you meet Neil? Uh, I met Neil when he came to New York. I was in a group with Stephen called The Go-Go Singers, and and we we broke up and Stephen went off with part of the band well yeah we, we kind of got finished he broke he broke off and went up to canada to work his way across Can- uh, canada to get to california and he ran into neo in toronto and neo came down to pedal some songs in new york and that was the first time i met him he stayed at our little place there on 171 thompson street in new york and and so that's where
1: i met him first off so that wasn't too long until the springfield so what happened after that did he go back up north and then i know he had a hearse i know the story you got to tell it well i'll tell you the story yeah he went back up to can i guess and played in some you know some
3: of the folk clubs i went up to uh, east hartford connecticut to work in pratt and whitney aircraft handing out tools in the tool crib because i had to eat you know and, and then i'd come back down to new york and do auditions and things like that but um uh graham parsons Brought me the Bird's first record up to me when I was living with this family up in Connecticut, working at Pratt and Whitney. And he said, "You got to hear this, man." I said, "Okay, man, let's let's listen and put it on." It was like, "Oh my gosh, I got I got get back playing some music, man." And so I got a hold of Stephen. Strange thing, man. The only address I had was an address for his dad. So I sent him a letter. And El Salvador, his dad was in El Salvador. I didn't have. How- this was we didn't have. We didn't have this kind of stuff. We didn't have cell phones and internet and all that stuff, man. So I sent him the letter and I never, it was like, I never got a response. I waited, waited, waited. Finally, the letter came back. I didn't have enough postage. So I sent the letter out again. And um and and it finally came back and I got Stephen's address got in touch with him he said come on out to California I got a band together and, da, 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 da. and by that time and I saw where I think you guys had done uh, and talked to Van Dyke Parks right Yeah and he, I think Van he and Stephen were doing some things in LA and but Stephen said come on out man all I need is another singer man we got a band and we'll go to town you know and I said well let me take care of my business here cuz I'm on my way I will tell you this um, it was quite a step for me because I had come down to New York at one point in time before Stephen had taken off to go to California. He was trying to put together another little band kind of modeled after uh, the Love and Spoonful. And it sounded so bad, man. And handing out tools in the tool crib was better than that. Oh, and so I went okay. back to Kinetic. I told <laughs> Stephen he doesn't even remember the band. It was so bad. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> we got out to California. I mean, I did. And um, me and Stephen was the band. There was no band. Oh. And so we started, but you know what? It was perfect because we sat in this little tiny room. Learning all of the songs that he had written that would end up on the first Buffalo Springfield record, we learned how to sing together, how to harmonize together, how to, you know, just a to phrase together. I think one of the things that I really loved about Stephen was just the way that he had a phrasing songs. And he said, you know, I, I think he gave some credit to Tim Harden for that. You know, like Tim. Tim was a great, great singer, songwriter, and singer. And so it was valuable time. It was kind of like sketchy, man. What's going to happen, you know? And then we had the little incident where we met on uh, Neil and Bruce had Bruce Palmer had come down from Canada looking for Stephen, and couldn't find him. They had been in LA for probably three or I don't know, maybe three weeks or so. And hey, we weren't out and about living on town, you know. We couldn't do anything. We were broke, poor, and just kind of hanging out. And um, finally, you know, we were on Sunset Boulevard. We were heading east and, and Bruce and, and, and Neil were heading west of the 405 to head to San Francisco. And, uh, you know, and, and it's like we got stuck right there on Sunset Boulevard. Now,
2: yeah, it's supposed to happen, man.
3: How's that going to work any other way than that? Were you guys
2: in a car and they were in a car and you saw each well, other? I mean, or what? The,
3: the way that it happened was that hearse that Dane was talking about. Yeah, Ben Neal was driving that old hearse, and it was, you know, it was an odd ball on Sunset Strip, even back
1: in the early 60s, man. Oh, sure. <laughs> a dude in a hearse. Yeah, I was like, that's, I bet Stephen goes, that's got to be Neil. Well, we saw Ontario plates on the back
3: of it, you know, and, and we got stuck in traffic. There was a traffic jam. Wow
2: that is huh? one of the greatest stories of all time
4: <laughs> that's got to be a song well, yeah i i guess so i don't know why nobody really <laughs> I, know, right? that.
2: Yeah. I mean obviously i'm stating the obvious a little bit but just when you think about an instance like that where you know kind of the stars aligned no pun intended the and all the music that came as a result of that happenstance moment you know not to say it wouldn't have happened otherwise but Happening the way it did, it obviously makes for a great oh, story.
3: Oh, man, it, wow. it, it was crazy. I mean, Graham coming up to Connecticut, uh, Steve uh Neil coming down to uh, pedal songs, and Stephen meeting him and, and meeting Neil in Canada, and then, you know, in L.A., you know, it's like...
1: It boggles the mind, for sure. Wow. <laughs> it, it's a story, man. And, and what a great band you guys were, too. I mean, and uh, underrated bass player, Bruce Oh, Palmer. my God, Bruce. Wow, man, like on... uh there a rock and roll woman that Baseline what's what is that man he was something else man
3: Bruce was talented I can still see Stephen uh, you know Bruce had difficulties and got deported a couple times back up because the the Springfield is a Canadian band. It had Neil, Bruce, and Dewey. They were all, they were all Canadians. just Stephen and me. And, and, you know, one, one of the times that Stephen, uh, that uh, Bruce got deported back up to Canada and we were trying to fill the shoes and, you know, man, I mean, Hey, we even tried Jimmy Fielder, who is a great bass player. Man. I mean, no doubt about it, but I can still see Stephen then in, in, in this parking lot, throwing rocks up at the window of our manager's, trying to get attention to get this guy back down here, man. So we can
1: play some more music. So he ended up having to got deported twice or something. Yeah.
3: Is that visa related or we just don't want to talk about it? <laughs> well, yeah, it doesn't. I mean, Bruce had drug problems, Oh, okay. you know, he, he was, he was de- and he got, he got deported. Fortunately, he didn't get arrested and thrown in jail and you know, they just deported him, you know, but yeah, he, he struggled. He struggled with that and, and sometimes wasn't as cautious as maybe he could have been. <laughs> Look at today, <laughs> but, um, he was a great musician you know it was crazy man Uh, maybe we didn't have the the greatest musicians in the world to put that whole thing together i mean Dewey, dewey was a simple drummer he had a good feel though But man he put it was what worked and you know when we tried there were nine people in and out of the well, I mean the five, you know, that was original, and the four that we tried to, you know, when Neil left and when Bruce left, we tried, you know, shifting people in and out of the band. But in, in two years, and that's why we couldn't stay together. We were
4: only together for two years.
1: <laughs> well, all that great music in that short amount of time. You
4: can't modify good chemistry either It's just what it is when people. Yeah, are, that's exactly right. You, you break apart the Beatles and their disparate capabilities as musicians and so on. I mean they're really good at what they do and they were remarkable together they they did okay it's like
1: the sum is greater than the whole of the parts yeah it's like Absolutely yeah man that is a complete
4: out of out of sequence question but when you were in New York did you ever play full city I never did
1: no
3: and I, I I don't at least I don't remember that I did if I go back then but uh oh uh-uh. no it was it was crazy um we played um the Agogo singers did this kind of like Americana review at a little place man was about as narrow as the room i'm in right now um right next door to cafe wa and we played we we played a few a few little things but we the the thing that we did the most i think was we we did this supper club tour of texas i mean the coco singers were it was crazy we we made a roulette a record for roulette records did an on broadway tonight um thing with um rudy valley we did to so the tv show we made the record and we all in a period of like less than eight or nine months and then it was done and how old were you in this period uh 1920 i was 20 19 and 20 years old and it's very let me tell you man it's really out of character for me that i would pack up a guitar and a, and a tape recorder and a suitcase and head off to new york you know to go to be a folk singer
4: man but that's what we did you can't plan things um Again, this is an aside, and I've, I've said it on these, these podcasts before, but I feel very privileged to say that I've actually played with a yard bird. I was brought in by Terry Brown, Russia's really best producer, and he just said, I, I want you to play some uh, strings and some acoustic guitar on three tracks. And he didn't tell me who it was. Cleverly, he didn't tell me, because I would have been intimidated. But anyway, at the end of the day, he liked it, and I got introduced to him at a garden party. Hugh, I'd like you to meet Jim. And I said, hey, Jim, how you doing? Hugh, said so I'm Jim McCarty. And I said, you got the same name as the guy from the Yardbirds. And he said, I am the, <laughs> guy. I am the same guy. I've told this story to the to the other guys enough times that they're probably sick of hearing it. But I only tell it because it, it speaks to the fact that you just never know when you're going to see a hearse on sunset in a <laughs> traffic jam. <laughs> you never know, man. Especially that one, man.
2: <laughs> one area we always like to talk about on the podcast is is artwork, uh, you know, with Hugh's background and whatnot. If we could delve into that a little bit uh, as it relates to your career and the bands that you've been a part of, um, we can do that. Well,
4: obviously, I mean, there's so many ways to talk about artwork. I mean, there's the issue of how did it speak to you when you were a kid, or when you were when you were buying albums? Did you get drawn to the album art? Were you all about the music and the artwork was quite secondary? I mean, I look at Springfield covers. You got some, you know, you you look at the um, the cover, the painting, the trees,
1: you know, the, the, Eve Babbitt. Yeah, that's the but the second that's record. the
4: second one. Yeah, the second one that Eve did. Yeah, that I mean, that's clearly you know, I mean. Right, in, in, in line with all the artwork from like the Moody Blues and Genesis and so on, even though that's not your genre, but it, it spoke to that kind of style. But how, how involved were you with the artwork? How much did it matter to you as a band? Or were you kind of at the mercy of the record company? You know, And also, how much did album covers matter to you as you were coming up? That's really interesting. I mean, I wasn't that involved, but um, I think, you know, the fact that
3: um, – um, You know, the first I can't even remember who did the first Buffalo Springfield record that, you know, looks like film coming down, you know, I was definitely more in tune with the music than I was contributing to. Oh, let's do a, a, a an album cover that looks like this or looks like that. You know, I pretty much, you know, we would hire, you know, certain people to to put uh, put things together. Of course, at one time, you know, I think we wanted Gary Burden, you know, to do some things for us, and and this and that and the other. Um, but it, it wasn't really something that that I was focused on as much as I was on the music, you know? And, and I guess I was hoping that whoever was putting this together, you know, was sensitive enough to the music that we were we were doing. There was some, and there's some that I like
1: and some that I don't like that we were, you know, uh, involved with. I love the last time around where you got, it reminds me of the Bird's Notorious Bird Brothers where they got a horse in David Crosby's place and you guys got Neil's head. Like facing the other direction because he'd been in and out of the band three or four times. And is that was that whose idea was that? I, you know, because it is. I probably it is superimposed. I'm probably pretty sure. I think it is. Yeah, and He's yeah, facing yeah, the opposite direction. Yeah,
4: opposite direction. And yeah, you you picked up on that. Yeah, you know? yeah,
1: I always wondered. I thought oh. So
4: often it's kind of a humbling truth that album covers sometimes just don't matter. I mean, the Who live at Leeds, the Beatles White Album, which is a pretty cheeky kind of non-art album, you know. There there are times, Slippery When Wet by Bon Jovi. These are not important-looking album covers, but they were great-sounding albums. Even the Beatles, for the most part, didn't have great covers. They had remarkable, memorable covers because of the fact that Bill wags a dog sometimes. So you look at, obviously, Pepper and and Revolver and those, those are really interesting covers, but they have a lot. Yeah, they are. They're very interesting, yeah. A lot of covers that just kind of didn't really matter as much as the music, you know.
3: Yeah, well, you know what? I, I think the album covers also I mean, they attract people. Yeah, they do. And people are attracted to the visual part of that, you know, to find out what's in it. It's such a shame. I'm glad to see vinyl coming back a little bit today, you know. People can grab, you know, um and I gotta say I'm disappointed with with, with the insert of in the country because I mean it could have been better to read or whatever, but I mean, people will grab albums because they want they, the number one, they're attracted to what they saw. And then they they open it up and they can read what it's all about. You know what this record is all about, and and I mean, there's a lot to the artwork that goes into a record. I, I'm not I'm not trying to pass it off as something that isn't wasn't important to me, but but um, I I think you know lots of times you know people people be flipping through you know the 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 bins today and they'll see well that's an interesting looking and they'll they'll pick up the cover so that'll attract
1: that could attract somebody to a band or a music a genre that they never even listened to before sure we all used to love to open up those records and read about them that was an important thing
2: you know obviously there's a lot of famous people in the bands that you were in super famous but when I personally when I think of Buffalo Springfield I think of the you know the artsy cover with like birds on it or the film or when i think of poco i think of the horse i think of those
4: things. that horse is iconic that was a beautiful testament to simplicity and minimalism but it really it stuck yeah phil hartman i was out of the band then
3: he's john's brother i don't know john hartman yeah yeah he's john and and phil of course passed away but uh, that was phil hartman he designed that that was and, and so simple but so I mean I mean so dynamic at the same time.
4: Great great album great album cover. Sure was an accidental icon
3: that became the icon. You know, of Poco's. You know, I mean, yeah, it was a, it was a great album cover. <laughs>
2: I'll tell you the other when when I was looking through your stuff last night, the Southern Hillman Fure one as well. You know, back in the seventies when they would have some of those with that blue. Yeah, yeah, with that that look. Uh, uh, I don't know who else did it, but I, it feels real familiar when I saw it. I was like, that's really actually a super cool cover for somehow or another we missed the boat on that we were it was supposed to be one of
3: those photos of an old where we were we were cracked i mean the photo was cracked in a way it was old you know and that part of it never really got translated right
1: really okay i thought it was cool yeah well i hey, think it's cool yeah Andy, <laughs> well, and, <laughs> and you know what yeah. I, I love those records too and i'm, I'm going to come back to that uh, I thought those were great records uh, Let's talk about your 15 there Dane Yeah, let's. I, I want to go back to that That The first Springfield record that we, we were talking about You and Steven were woodshedding together uh, The vocals uh, Going back and listening again yesterday I mean I've been hearing these songs forever But knowing that I'm going to talk to you today <laughs> I'm really going to listen to this stuff Again with a Try to listen to it with a fresh ear And the vocals are just fantastic Like Go and Say Goodbye Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's perfectly sang. The guys are
3: perfect. We did that over and over and over again. And I I, I love that song. It's one of my favorite Stephen songs. I think I've recorded that song three or four times.
1: (laughs) It's just fantastic. The performance is great. Uh, It's almost like you guys get that thing going. And on some of these other songs, too, do I have to come right out and say it? Uh, Where where it's almost like when Lena McCartney did uh, If I Fell, where you can't tell what's the harmony and what's the melody. It's just... It's one of my favorite sounds is that sound that you guys captured on that record.
3: Well, do I have to come right out and say it as much as I love nowadays, Clancy can't even sing, do I have to come right out and say it should have been the Springfield's first single? It might have changed It might have changed the history of the of of our you know careers for uh, you know the next little while. but because uh, it, it was an exce- it was accessible. Nowadays Clancy was very eccentric. I mean, that was an I mean that
1: thing going from 3/4 four, to 4/4. Four, four. It was a little it was odd for the time. It's a classic, but you could be right that could have been it was probably more of a commercial song and it had a classic that B section. I mean, you guys there was two or three of those on that record and Flying on the Ground is wrong. That's my favorite one. Wow, what a vocal. Man, and the, that's got that whole bridge, that expanded bridge which you guys were so good at doing. On those records, uh, I just want our listeners to go back and check out that first Springfield record. It's unbelievable. The songs that you did on Buffalo Springfield again, that were the, specifically yours, a child's claim to fame. Wow. Classic. What movie was that in? Wonder Boys. Yeah, Wonder Boys. Wonder Boys. Isn't Wonder Boys? And I remember because I have that soundtrack somewhere, and I go, and I just got a big. I could put a smile on my face. Okay, <laughs> we got a Springfield song on here, man, and a, and, and it's a, not
3: a Stephen Seals for what it's y- worth. Yeah, it it's down. your song.
1: It's great. It's a. It's a. It's a. It's a very cool song. Great rock and country tune, and then "Sad Memory," which uh, which Hugh was talking about earlier. That's a classic of classics, there, man. Your melodies is that's. Just so beautiful, love that song. And I also love the next tune on the record, the one you wrote for Dewey to sing. Oh, good time, boy. good time, boy! <laughs> no, man, good time, boy is smoking with the Memphis Horns. That's the track is smoking.
3: It's, you know, Dewey, when we got Dewey to join the band, he, um, you know, he auditioned this. Then he said, "But if I join the band, man, I want, I want at least be able to sing a song. I sing
1: like Wilson Pickett, and he kind of <laughs> did. He didn't quite have the chops, but he kind of did the. He kind of did that. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> Yeah, he did that thing. Well, that's very cool. That's a cool song. And then the one you wrote with Neil on last time around is really beautiful. How'd that come about? It's so hard to wait. Uh, you know, I had a little piece. I think I
3: had it song. time to be I can't remember the line now. And then Neil went off and took off on another part. We we actually kind of wrote another song that that somehow or another uh, didn't get credit for, but that's okay. Really, what was that? I got another.
1: Uh, <laughs> Well, there was a song, the very first song on a record, I think. Oh, On the Way Home? (laughs) Really? which is one of my favorites. That's a
3: beautiful song. I love I love saying that, but yeah, I mean, we, we didn't write a lot together and, you know, we had bits and pieces and somebody would finish a song or add to a song to make it like a more complete song. And that's what happened to it. So hard to wait. And, and, all. and, and there was, there was something, you know, Hey, things were moving so fast and going so fast at that time and people were
1: in and out, man. And so it it never, you know, it's okay life goes on. Yeah, man. Well, what, what a great attitude to have about it. And, but all those songs are great, but kind woman was really the one that kind of I thought showed where maybe you were headed. And that's the first cat. Did you just meet Rusty young? Cause he's on that tune, right? Yeah. Um, we, we were, we were looking for a steel
3: guitar player. We were looking for the, uh, um. you know, at this time, what we were going to do, Jimmy and I, next because we knew the Springfield was over we're finishing up this record you can't get a hold of anybody else and uh, we, we were looking for a steel guitar player and the road manager came to us and said man I know the best steel guitar player in the world he lives back in Denver Colorado man and he is really good and so sight unseen unheard anything we brought Rusty out to LA man and I mean he put that that part on I mean I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that tell me that they picked up the steel guitar, listening to what Rusty did on, 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 "Kind Woman," and you know his guitar got lost on the way. He had to play. I think Stephen had a a lap steel or something very similar. It was a steel, but he had some instrument. You know that Rusty ended up playing, and it's very, very, very unique. When I re-recorded "A uh, Kind Woman" on my "Heartbeat of Love" record. Uh, I had Dan Dugmore. He was in, he played, he was playing with me all the time out on every record that I've done since 19, I think 1997 or 98. And, uh, he was, he was nervous having to cause having to play. Cause he said, man, Rusty played this, you know, and he, he, he will give Rusty, you know, credit for, um, you know, influencing him to get started and, and all, but, um, um, Rusty was just one of the greatest innovators on that instrument. He did things on that instrument that other people would never have attempted. I mean, running the thing through a Leslie to make it sound like an
1: organ, turning it over at Carnegie Hall, burning it like Pete uh, Towson. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah. He really did that? He burned up a steel? Well,
3: he, he he turned it over. I won't say burned it up. He burning it up as he was playing.
1: Man. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. He kicked it over. He was doing a Jerry Lee with it or something, huh? That's funny. Well, what what a great song, man. And then as, uh, you know, as that first Poco record, a, a couple some of the standout tracks for me, uh, I loved Calico Lady, Make Me a Smile, the two that wrote with Jim Messina. Uh, and it's that kind of showed me that, you guys were country but you were rock you were kind of prog too but people kind of forget and i'm going to come to that later the the last song i want to talk about but you're actually kind of a prog country rock band nobody it was a little different than what everybody oh that's doing.
2: that's a new it's, that a, sounds, new it's like a new genre hey, I hey, man, like that. Me,
1: just I'm, you
2: got you right here Hugh, Hugh can do the record covers i mean he did all the rush stuff so it's an easy easy <laughs> thing let's Let's launch it right now. The first (laughs) country prog rock band. But it's
1: (laughs) like there's three, four bars. Time signatures, yeah. There's interesting uh, meter changes occasionally. Time signatures that you were doing. Uh, And then there's, of course, the song Picking Up the Pieces, which you've redone on your new record. There's a little bit of magic in the country. It's always been a classic song. And uh, I love the old one. I love the new one. Cool. So you have heard that bonus track (laughs) (laughs) i heard it on uh apple music because i have that but uh yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna keep going here now the second poker record hurry up what were you guys doing man it's like pre little feet it's like funky it's the funkiest song i think you guys ever did and one of my favorites and i had kind of forgotten about it uh until i listened to it again today and i just started grinning man what a cool tune
3: Oh, Love, that, you,
1: song. Love <laughs> that song. Love that it, song. It
3: had a fun little groove to it, man. We played. I played that live for a, for a couple years in in one of my bands. You know, putting a little medley
1: together. But yeah, it was a. Uh, it rocks. Oh, it's very cool. And keep on believing. It's got that more odd meters in it. It's it's almost like the grateful dead, except you guys could really sing good. (laughs) (laughs) It really does have a little bit of dead in it, but you know, you guys sing great. Nice guys. I'm not gonna, you know, say anything, but wow, that's a that's a killer song. You already did. (laughs) I already did. And you have to, and you don't have to. It's a documentary. And my, my favorite song, my favorite Poco song is and I think it's a masterpiece and it's like 10 minutes long. It, crazy eyes, crazy eyes. Yeah. Come on, man. You talk about a prog tune, you know, listeners, if you want to hear a classic long, uh, kind of undefinable genre of music, listen to crazy eyes. It's
2: I, I listened to that last night, Dane. I appreciate you bringing that up. I felt the same way. Kind of like, man, I, mean, I have not heard the song in a long time and I didn't remember it being so different. And it's it's about Graham Parsons, is it not?
3: Well, Graham certainly had some influence. I mean, how can I sing songs about, you know, Crazy Eyes, number one. You know, when you're talking to Graham sometimes, man, it was like you'd look at him and you could almost look through him because you didn't know exactly, you know, where. And then, you know, down among the South Carolina Pines, where he was from, you know, and I mean, down in that area. And, and so, yes, uh, uh, th- there were some things and, and you know, Graham and I did have a relationship. So I mean I won't deny that there there's definitely uh, you know some some influential um, parts of that song lyrically that helped uh, define our relationship. It was a little folk song. And Jack Richardson, who was producing the album at the time, he said, hey, let me send what we just recorded back to Bob Ezrin and let Bob Ezrin see what he, and so Bob Ezrin is the one that put that whole, that whole project together with little, little
4: bits and pieces that we played as just a, a, a little folk song. Interesting. That's how that was. Okay. I always look at the songs like, you know, Strawberry Fields. It was a scrubby little folk song, too. But before people like,
1: you know, George Martin and the band get a hold of it, Ezra, no question. I mean, you're, you're yes, you know. that makes sense. I didn't realize that. Kudos to your song and his production and the way all that came together. That is a fantastic piece of music. It is an exciting piece. I I'll agree with you. Thank you. And I was going to ask you, didn't wasn't Graham Parsons, I might have this wrong, but was he trying to maybe be in Poco in the very early days, before the Burritos? We were both putting bands
3: together at the same time, and it was kind of like, who are we going to swap out, you know, to, to put in this band or that band, or, you know, how are we going to make one band out of these two? And you know what, I mean, as, as fate would have it, you know, it wasn't going to work. You know, as much as I love working with Chris, you know, and having him, uh, you know, I mean, I love Chris. And he would have been probably one of the guys that I would have, you know, loved to have had. And obviously, we worked together later on in years. And he's, in fact, as I got a, a podcast coming out with him in a couple of days, I just got a a, a note from. But, um, you know, I mean, we the Brito brothers were what the Brito's brothers were. And Poco was what we were. And there was just not much there wasn't much there wasn't much wiggle room in there to move somebody around you know
1: and and obviously you guys were you you guys were hitting the bricks with your because your tight your tracks were tight always um so let me go on and just say there's a few more songs that so the so the uh the souther hillman fury band falling in love come on man that's a great stomping rocker Uh, i hadn't heard that one for a while till i'd listened to it again that was was a that was a Yeah, it was a rock and roll song. And I wanted Richie Podler
3: to record Poco early on and CBS turned us down. And that's when we got Jack Richardson, who obviously was a great producer in and of himself, you know, doing a guest and people like that. But I always loved Richie's music and I liked what he did. We went in and we cut three demos with him. And they, they made Poco, he made Poco sound as alive, because that's what we were trying to capture, what we were capturing in a live audience feel. He was able to do it. And so we cut a few of those songs, but CBS wasn't hearing it. So I was really glad when, um, uh, you know, when Southern Human Theory got together, that we were able to get Richie to to produce the record for us. Because he, he was a talented, talented, him and Bill Cooper, man, we very talented
1: guys. <laughs> sure. That was a that was a great record, and I know there's maybe not a whole lot of love about the second record that people don't like it as well. But I love Trouble in Paradise. I thought it was great. I thought it had two great songs of yours. Uh, for someone I love is a beautiful ballad. Love it. Well, great song. David
3: David Cassidy took part of that song and put a, and he made a song of his own using part of that song. I can't believe it, man. Did he? David and I were friends. We were friends. Yeah, he he did a song called um Love in Bloom, and just check it out. I mean, he took the whole, he took, there's my part right there. <laughs> David and I were friends, and but I didn't even know that he did that at the time, you know? But uh, yeah, that was, you know, I'd look at that as a prophecy song. Cause my wife and I were actually, we had been married for seven years and we were separated for seven months. And that was the whole thing that, about me leaving that band was that I had to t- take a focus on is it my marriage I want or is it this musical career I want and I chose my but I wrote maybe just a little more time when the winter snows melt mid-spring and who knows well that's when we got back together in the springtime and I had no I wrote this song years before we ever I mean not years but probably a year before we ever even separated and so that, when that song came around man I was like and we got back together i look at it now and i think my gosh man i was talking to myself about a story that was like
1: Germany wow that's <laughs> so something we got 55 else 55
3: years now man
1: well god bless you guys that's awesome <laughs> no kidding and the, one more song on the line that should have been a single why didn't you guys put that out as a single
3: you know i think because the band was pretty much over at the time and i don't i don't i really don't know i, I don't
1: it was a, it's a lost, it's a lost one. So listeners on the line for someone I love both off the trouble in paradise record. Uh, got to tell you my,
3: out. one of the things about the, man, we had Tommy Dow do that record and I don't even, Oh, He did that I, one. Okay. I don't even re I don't even remember. I mean, cause Nancy and I were separated. She was down here. Probably five miles from Caribou Ranch where we recorded it, and I was out of the house. Ha- I mean, it was like it was a nightmare time for me, man. I wasn't, I, I was not connected. But here I am, man, making a record with one of the greatest musical guys in the world, you know. And and I don't even. He must have thought, man, where did you guys pick this guy up at? <laughs> you know, because I, I
4: was like, I was delusional at the time. I was just delusional. So. How did? find yourself with two Canadian producers of, of such note, like Richardson and Ezra, and how did that happen? Uh, well, Jack had done a lot of stuff with Bob. Okay. I mean, right. he
3: did some other work with him. And when we were looking for producers, uh, you know, for um, for Poco at that time, um, you know, we were looking, we'd already, had we made a record with Steve Cropper at that time? I don't know if we, uh, yeah, we had yeah, cause Bob um anyway, it was through Jack. That's how we met, you know, that's how we met Bob <clears throat>
2: i I wanted to ask about the fiftieth anniversary or the fiftieth I, I mean return to the troubadour release, not anniversary. but what was that like for you? I mean, talk about a, obviously a full circle moment, but what was that like that night? And obviously the the recording's fantastic. you know what was really cool
3: about that, Annie was the 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 people were so into it you know the troubadour isn't a very big place when i walked into it's like whoa but it was like wall to wall they took all the tables out of the place and and man when we came out and we started that first you know i guess you made it It, well actually we played a set before that but when we started that the people were so into it and it just you know it was just a satisfying moment you know the people you know were so in tune to the music because let's face it i haven't had I haven't had hit records, you know, I mean, I've had a hit with some of the bands that I've been in, but but I still love to go out and play and people knew my music and knew the songs that that I'd been associated with. And and, and it was I, I didn't think we could pull it off until I looked at all the songs that were on the album and all of them, but about four songs had I already included in my sets somewhere along the line, you know, so I knew we could make it happen. And um, it was it was a special evening for sure, man. I mean, you just look at some of the people in their faces and they're 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 having as much fun as we are, man, no doubt.
2: You you can hear that on the recording, too, by the way. I, I you know, and hearing you say that you can definitely hear that.
3: Yeah, that That's awesome. And, and, you know, when the audience is into it, that just makes you get into it all the more. You know, it's like no if they're just. If, if sometimes you're playing to these reserve audiences that are 70 years old now today, you know, you just wonder if they're into it or not. Man. And,
1: and I'm still one of these
3: guys, man, and I'm out there ready to jam you, man. Let's go.
1: Yeah. That's what it's all about. Well, I've got a question. So I, I read somewhere where, I don't know if you're semi-retired or retired. I know you're going to play some shows, but uh, sure. I man. you got to make another record, man. This last one was so good. Your voice is so good. You got to make. You got to start working on another record. We want to be able. To, we want to get you back on here when it comes out. Awesome. Talk
3: well, I'm working then. on some
1: songs, but you know what? You got it. You got to put some some stuff out there.
3: I've got two records out there. I really want people to listen to one called Heart Heartbeat of Love and another one called Hand in Hand. And these are these are records that I made, or I'll say records. These are projects that I've done. You know, more recently. And um, man, I think it's some of the best music that I've done, you know. And check out the the packaging for "Heartbeat of Love." And if you haven't seen it, I tried to make this. I mean, Hugh would probably appreciate this. There's a guy back here, uh, Gary. Oh gosh, I can't remember his last name now. I can't believe it. But anyway, it is a project that you can open it up, and it's like you're opening up an album. And it is so cool, "Heartbeat of Love." And then the last one that I did, um, you know, around the time that I did the, the 50th anniversary thing at the Troubadour was uh, an album called Hand in Hand. All of these records were cut in Nashville with, I mean, just the top players in the world, man. And he's it's just a lot of fun to make and got a couple devotional records that I made in my father's house and I am sure. So, I, you know, I try to keep music happening. Because it makes, you know, I can't just go back and just play all these old songs all the time. I play in my sets, you know, I'm just looking, I'm looking at my new set list, you know, for coming out, coming out this, uh, and, and it's like, I got, you know, all the songs that are new songs, and then I got a lot of, I mean, old songs, and then I got the second half, man, a bunch of new songs, so, um.
1: We hope you come to Indiana, because I want to see you. I would love to. I've seen Stephen, I've seen Neil, uh, and I haven't seen you, man. I've got to see Well, you. I
3: keep a low profile.
2: That's okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if you get in this area, man, we're coming. I'm just telling you.
2: All right, man. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it.
1: You guys are
3: awesome. I had a wonderful, wonderful time. Thanks for inviting me, man, and I hope to see you someday down the road. Oh, yeah.